You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building. Tempted to pivot after that last song and just preach a sermon on the Beatitudes, just on the fly. Um, I won't do that because I'm equally excited to finish out the story of Ruth, but perhaps sometime soon. We try to come back to the Beatitudes every couple years anyway as a reset to remind us that God's blessing is with the poor in spirit, the merciful, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness that Whereas Christless religion can only lead to one of two places, pride or despair. Pride if we think we're accomplishing things in the name of God and for his glory such that uh, we have merited his love. Uh, Despair when we feel like we failed at that very same initiative. Uh, In contrast, the gospel leads to confident humility. Confidence because Jesus paid it all, not some of our sin debt. And humility because Jesus paid it all. We add nothing to his redemptive work. Uh, simply to the cross we cling, coming empty-handed. If you have a Bible, I'm going to go ahead and invite you to open up to Ruth chapter 4 this morning. By the way, if we haven't met, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastor elders of our church. I privilege most Sundays with the opportunity of preaching God's word. Surely the case this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the chairs in the row in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those Bibles. Use it during our time together this morning. If you don't own a Bible, please take that as the church's gift to you. Happy early Easter. Let me pray for us, and we'll go ahead and, and jump in. Heavenly Father, you sit high. The earth is your footstool, your sovereign ruler, Lord over all creation. You look down low in mercy and grace and kindness upon a fallen creation, a fallen humanity. Moved to send your son to do something about it. Praise you, Jesus, for stooping into the slums of our fallen, broken world. To live the life that we could never live, a perfect sinless life. That you might die in our place as our substitute sin bearer. The debt of our sin nailed to the cross. Three days later to rise from the grave, which is not something we celebrate just on Easter Sunday, but every Sunday around here. I pray as we zoom in on this story of Ruth one last time. That we would see its place in redemptive history. That we would see your kindness in the zoom lens for what it is. That we'd also zoom back out and see the beauty of the fullness of redemptive history and our place in it. Holy Spirit, we're desperate for you to move in power. To awaken our minds from their slumber this morning. To stir our hearts, our affections for Christ. That we might walk out of here transformed by yet again a steady diet of the many means of grace that are ours for the taking as we gather in spaces like these. Would you give me a feeling sense of the things I preach? 
along with my brothers and sisters who gather here and whoever might be jumping in on a podcast or live stream right now. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So as I mentioned from week one of this series, the story of Ruth, it's one of the most endearing stories in all the Bible. It's a story of providence. It's a story of redemption. It's a story within the greater story of God's redeeming love for us in Jesus Christ. By, by way of the briefest of recaps, the story of Ruth, as many of you know, who have been around for this series, begins with a famine in the land of Judah in the days in which the judges ruled. A time when there was yet no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. As I've mentioned before, a kind of ancient Near Eastern form of postmodernism. What's good for you and true for you is good for you and true for you. And what's good for me and true for me is good for me and true for me. And, and you live in accordance with your truth and I'll live in accordance with mine. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So that a famine overtook the land, God's megaphone calling his people to return to him in repentance and trust. A famine leading a woman by the name of Naomi and her family to depart for the land of Moab, one of the many surrounding lands of foreign gods. A land in which not only did her husband pass away, leaving Naomi a widow and her sons fatherless, but a land in which her sons too died, leaving their two Moabite wives, Ruth and Orpah, grieving widows as well. A story not without its Job-like beginnings. And yet a story not completely absent of hope, as we've seen as the famine in Judah eventually came to an end, prompting a return for Naomi to Bethlehem with her daughter-in-law Ruth right by her side. The return home for Naomi, sorrowful to say the least, God having become in her mind this frowning providence behind which there hides no smiling face, and yet, as we've seen for weeks now, this, like the story of Esther, the story of a great reversal, a story covered in the fingerprints of the providential hand of a God who's always at work in bringing his redemptive purposes to fulfillment. As Ruth, in an effort to gather food, chapter 2, happened upon a field belonging to one of the only men able to redeem she and Naomi. A man by the name of Boaz, a man concerned with mercy and justice, committed to filling the empty cupboard of these two widowed women. More than that, chapter 3 committed to their redemption, promising Ruth at the threshing floor that her story would have its happy ending, which, which we began to truly get a feeling sense of last week, right? The door of opportunity swinging open wide at the city gate for Boaz to, to play an even bigger part in this story of ruin to redemption, in an act of self-giving love, stepping in as a kinsman redeemer, clarifying his intention to redeem Naomi's property, that the land might remain in the family, as well as his intention to marry Ruth and raise up a child with her on the family name of the deceased to carry on that name. So that it should come as no surprise, picking up in verse 13 of chapter 4, we're told, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And in the, in the closing of this great story, we see God's redeeming love in so many wondrous and glorious ways. Just as we see so much tragedy in just the first few opening verses of this story. We see God's redeeming love in the life of Ruth, for one. 
who goes from being described repeatedly throughout this story as Ruth the Moabite to being described here as the wife of Boaz. Given a new status, more to Naomi, as we'll read about in verse 15, than seven sons. The women of the town will go on to declare that. In a culture in which sons were highly esteemed, and the number seven was seen as the number of fullness or completion. That's saying something about Ruth. Two, we see God's redeeming love in the giving of this newlywed couple a son. Where there was once no one to perpetuate the family line. The Lord giving Ruth conception, we're told here in verse 13. Just as the Lord had visited his people, chapter 1, verse 6, and given them food where there was once famine. It's the only two times, notice, in the, in the story of Ruth that God's involvement is explicitly mentioned. His provision of a harvest, chapter 1. His provision of a son, chapter 4. The two redemptive bookends of this story reminding us that God has always been working to bring about something beautifully redemptive in the story of Ruth from beginning to, to end in each and every chapter in between. It's not the first nor the only time that we see divine intervention in the most unlikely of circumstances in the provision of children who would play a significant role in redemptive history. There's Sarah's conception of Isaac, though well into the golden years of her life. Rebecca's conception of Jacob in the midst of her barrenness. Not unlike the story of Hannah and her conception of Samuel. The most wondrous, of course, being the conception of Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The glorious miracle of the incarnation. Right, Ruth stands among these women. God's answer to the prayers of the people at the city gate, going back to chapter 4, verse 11. Again, so that just as we saw great loss captured in the first few verses of this story, so here we see the blessing of new life captured in the last few verses of the story. God's redemption, which we too see in the life of Naomi, who's brought from a, a place of emptiness to a place of fullness. Verse 14 then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Only weeks ago, we, we read of Naomi's declarative words through her tears of bitterness. Chapter 1, verse 13. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The women of the town now declaring, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer. Behind that frowning providence in her mind, there does stand a smiling face. There always has. Here we see that not only is Boaz seen as a redeemer in this story, but too, Boaz's son, this newborn baby who would be a redeemer in his own right, not only in carrying on the family line, but in restoratively adding years to Naomi's life, lighting up her world as grandbabies have a way of doing, so I'm told. It goes on in verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. 
And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Naomi's hands once empty, now holding God's gift of a baby in her arms. Her heart once bitter, now experiencing the sweetness of redemption. Little baby Obed, named by the the women of the town, not meaning that Ruth and Boaz had no say in the matter, rather indicating a song of agreement among the women of, of Bethlehem, a song declaring this child would be special. The name Obed being short for Obadiah, meaning servant of Yahweh. A child who would undoubtedly serve God's purposes. We see it here in the bringing of his great plan of redemption to fulfillment. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Right, with the many spoilers throughout this sermon series, we might not feel the gravity of these words as we should. We now see for ourselves that this is not simply the story of God's provision in the lives of Naomi and Ruth. No, it's too the story of God's provision of a king for his people. As the baby in Naomi's arms would go on to be the grandfather of King David himself, who would bring Israel to a place of unity, a place of stability, a place of security under his reign. Which is pretty wondrous when you consider how the book of Judges ends, which is the backdrop of the story of Ruth. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. A nation swept up in idolatry, on the verge of destruction, in the days when the judges ruled. This story, to be sure, a story of God's covenant faithfulness to two widowed women. Make no mistake about it. But more than that, a story of God's covenant faithfulness to Israel. Here ending with the the genealogy of Israel's greatest king. Verse 18. We're told, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. And Hezron fathered Ram. And Ram fathered Amenadab. And Amenadab fathered Nashon. And Nashon fathered Salmon. And Salmon fathered Boaz. And Boaz fathered Obed. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. In the words of, of one scholar... The grace of God is so pervasive that even the begats of the Bible are dripping with God's mercy. The story of Ruth brimming with with mercy and grace right down to the closing genealogy. As again, here here we see that God was bringing about something so much bigger than, than any of the characters in this story could have dreamed. Through a sequence, mind you, of seemingly mundane decisions and events. A redemption that would see its greatest expression well beyond the days of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. Well beyond the days of even the great King David himself. The unity, stability, and security that he would indeed bring under his reign. A greater David to come. Consider this. Whose birthplace would be the same lowly Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. Who would, like David, someday receive his own proper anointing and coronation. The approval of the Father. The anointing power of the descending spirit at his baptism in the Jordan River. Who would, like David, someday take on the role of a shepherd in laying down his life for the sheep. Who would, like David, someday bring down towering Goliaths of his own, the greater giants of Satan, sin, and death. 
who would, unlike David, someday provide the stability of a forever king in a forever kingdom of perfect justice and equity. And his name is Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson, in his commentary, says, This then is the final explanation for and purpose behind the trauma of Naomi's experience and the costly pilgrimage of Ruth. What God was quarrying out of the suffering of these two women was nothing less than his purpose to bring his son into the world in Bethlehem. He had in view not only providing literal bread in Bethlehem for a Gentile woman and her Jewish mother-in-law, but the coming of the bread of life broken not only for Israel, but in order to provide salvation for men and women in every place. I would ask you, have you repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness that can only be found in him? Is Christ your kinsman redeemer? By grace, through faith, do you know the new status, like Ruth, of what it is to be a child of God, a citizen and saint? Book of Ruth, it's one of the most endearing love stories in all the Bible, pointing us to the most endearing love story of all. The story of God's redeeming love for us in Jesus Christ, in whom there is peace and fullness of grace. As I mentioned in week one of this series, the, the story of Ruth, it's, it's good for our souls as it reminds us that our God is indeed a God who brings redemption out of the ashes of ruin. A God who invites us to pour out our hearts to him in lament, gives space for that, while too trusting that he's always at work in the hearts and lives of his people as we lament the brokenness within us and around us. A God who's sovereignly purposing our redemptive good and eternal joy even when and especially when the pain runs deepest. The grief runs deepest. A story reminding us that our lives too are covered in the fingerprints of the wondrous hands of his providence. A God who's redemptively involved in the everyday joys and sorrows of our lives. Oftentimes, again, bringing his redemptive purposes to fulfillment in the most unexpected of ways through the most ordinary of events and imperfect of people like you and me. More often than not, not parting red seas, so to speak, simply working in the fields in and through us. Right, none, of us none of us knows what the future will bring. Any more than Ruth Naomi, Boaz knew that their legacy would include the great King David and the greater King Jesus. Invited to live one day at a time, trusting the Lord to weave together the tapestry of their lives for redemptive good. So too are you and I invited to, to trust the Lord as we live each day for his kingdom, for his glory. In this already and not yet time in between a people situated in redemptive history between the two comings of Jesus. The tapestry of redemptive history, not yet complete, as God continues to providentially weave together countless threads. Those threads oftentimes hidden to us, someday to be revealed in the fullness of their interwoven beauty. Even when we can see them, we see the side with the knots. 
and yet there's beauty. Ian Dugat, in his commentary on these closing verses, he says, It is not just Ruth's story that turned out to be part of a much bigger narrative than she ever imagined. Your story and my story are also woven into the bigger tapestry of what God is doing in Jesus Christ. He has seated us with him in the heavenly realms, exalted us along with him to the glories of heaven, made us co-heirs with him, and blesses us, uh, blessed us with every spiritual blessing. In him, he says, we have been given a glorious genealogy. We are children of God. Though we in our sin wandered away empty and became hard-heartedly bitter toward him like Naomi, he has brought us back full indeed. He has made us sure and certain that in Christ, each of our stories has a good and happy ending. As we come to him, he enables us to find rest for our souls in his house forever. See the beauty of God's redemption in the face of our great kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. See a God whose fingerprints of providence are everywhere, who is weaving indeed each and every thread of our lives into a redemptive uh, tapestry. Even when we can't see it, inviting us to, to love him, to trust him, to rest in him. I want to give some space for that in these moments to come, to sit with the so what, not just of these dozen or so verses, but with the story as a whole, to ask, Lord, how are you, how are you moving and working and stirring in me? In terms of the so what of this great story of ruin to redemption, this story of providence, this story that points to a greater redemptive work in Jesus Christ. How are you inviting me, Lord, to trust you, even today, as I step out into the fields of my life that surround me? Where are you inviting me to rest in you? To not need my ways to be higher than yours? in order for everything to be okay? Our God is good. Our God is sovereign. Our God is wise. Our God is trustworthy. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.